0: Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for the day. Uh, Lord, just another beautiful day. And now we're through two months of 2024. And, Father, as we enter March, Lord, we're just reminded each and every day of your goodness to us. And, Lord, we pray that you would bless our lesson this morning. Uh, Lord, that you would help us, God, to learn about being uh, spirit-filled leaders. And uh, we pray that you would guide and direct this lesson, help me, God, to be effective in my teaching, to be spirit-filled as I do so. And I uh, ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so we have been looking at um, being spirit filled since November. I looked this morning, so since beginning of November, we've. If you take the idea of kind of going out from a. Uh, see if I can do it this way. Uh, so if we we've talked about chapters one through three, purple. That's not manly. Uh, see here. There we go. Then we have chapters one through uh, one through three, and then four through six. And chapters one through three, we talked about. Uh, we looked at what it means to be transformed by the gospel, uh, more than just being watered down, being saved. What's the work that God does inside of us? Uh, chapters 4 through 6 is what characteristics should be in our life because we're transformed uh, and, and in that umbrella uh, what we looked at with Ephesians 5 18 uh, we know that one of the things that should be a characteristic in being transformed by the gospel is that we are spirit filled right? uh, in addition to that we'll, we've been looking at even at subsections of that so if we take the idea away of the beginning of chapter 6 as a chapter break we've been looking at a couple of different characteristics that have been in there uh, and so as we kind of go back and look at this uh, we, we're reminded that there's a difference between God's sovereign will. Uh, for instance, we know that, that, um, that God brought all of history to its fulfillment in Christ. Um, that is God's sovereign will. However, there's also will of command. And when we looked at what are the things that we know God wants and desires for every single one of us. This is not something nebulous, should I take this job or should we move? This is something that is concrete, every one of us know. And we realize that one of those things is to be spirit-filled. So this... Uh, last week was like a 90% teaching and like 10% discussion. This week is going to be completely flipped. This, week, uh, this morning is going to be very, very, very discussion-based. And so depending on the nature of how much discussion we have, we may or may not finish today. Um, and so why is it important to be spirit-filled? Why would God's spirit be so intentional in directing Paul to write this?
1: We will not please God.
0: All right. Okay. Oops. I have to erase all that.
1: No. Nope. Okay.
0: So we have an we have an ambassador and that is a really great plug uh, because as people see the spirit of God in us, okay? Then they see there's something different about us. What else? It's very different from the testament teaching. You remember that phrase we've been using, counter countercultural um, I always I always uh Told my students that there's a reason why I don't teach penmanship when I t- when I taught in elementary. So we have countercultural, okay? Because when when people see the life of a believer, they should see that something is drastically different. People that are led by the flesh as opposed to people that are led by the spirit. Okay? Anything else? Anything else? So
1: we might fulfill God.
0: Okay, because as we are looking at. Um, what is God's will of my life in terms of should I take this job? Should we move? God, if I'm filled with God's Spirit, if I'm sensitive to God's Spirit, more likely I have a stronger tendency to be led by God's Spirit in making certain decisions. Okay, so cool. All right, now inside of uh, what we've been looking at, we've talked about areas of what we call my, we might call high visibility or high impact. So. We've talked about two specific areas inside the home, and one thing we looked at is being spirit-filled in our marriage and also being spirit-filled as parents. And so as we looked at these particular ones, what does it look like to be either a husband or a wife that is spirit-filled? This is all review. What does it look like to be a spirit-filled husband? What does it look like to be a spirit-filled wife? Okay. Okay, because the thing that is indicative of both is that there's a dying of self for the other person, that there's a submission, there's a submission, there's a sacrifice. Oh dread! Okay, here we go. All right, so here we have, so we have submission, and we also have sacrifice. Which we realize that that gets the idea of like agape love, okay, a sacrificial love. What else? What is what is uh, we have we have one thing that that this is that this this particular characteristic of being submissive of being of dying to self it pl- it looks different from both angles. We have how this looks as a wife. we also see how this looks as a husband. okay how does this look for for a wife, how does it look for a husband? Serving leadership. putting the needs of, a, of of the other spouse above my own okay. Uh, we realize that Paul, Paul talks about that there is an obedience on one side and We also see there's another one to where a husband should not be bitter against their wife uh, Or we see that it should be where the husband's supposed to die to himself to meet the needs of his wife every day um, Then we look at being spirit-filled as a parent okay? So some, so depending on what relationship we are, one of these two probably are speak to us Regardless of what we may be in life or what we have or our home is One of these two impact us in some way So whether it's being a spouse or being a parent what does it look like to be a spirit filled child? And there's a struggle. Can a child be spirit filled? You know, what, what does a, a temperamental hormonal teenager look like if they're saved? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, very much. Okay. So there's an obedience because there's a submission to authority. Okay. So here we have that, that the child, for example, they realize that they, that they have an authority. And so as a result of that, they are called to obey. And our job as parents is to remind them that I am just right now a surrogate, I'm just a proxy. And I keep pointing my children to Christ because one day they're not going to live in my house any longer. Okay? So I'm not the ultimate authority in their life. I'm simply pointing them towards the ultimate authority. However, what we sometimes struggle with is that we as parents have responsibility in being spirit-filled. And what is that? <laughs> not to provoke. Um, and so for the authority figure here, we realize that, um, and, and we don't have time to review everything this morning, but the idea of provoking is me setting the conditions of something I know is going to anger them, that's going to discourage them, uh, that I set them up for failure by putting the expectations too high for them. And I think that being spirit-led here as a parent is that it probably looks different for each of us. Okay? Because every child is different. And just when you start to figure them out, they change. So yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful. All right. Yes. All right. So... Here we have the third area that Paul gives. The third area that Paul gives, and this is outside the home. And we started this two lessons ago, with the exception of last week we, we took a sidebar and did something else. So we started looking at Area 3 last week. Um, and so inside of this, who is Paul talking to? We have, who is he literally talking to, and how do we apply it to us? He's, talking to, slaves. He's talking to slaves, and we looked at this passage and said, how can we apply this to us? Being spirit-filled as an as employee, as a worker. Um, we looked at, at several things. Um, inside of this, um, outside of the home, what is arguably the most influential sphere of our life? is work. Uh, we spend up to 90,000 hours working. We spend up to a third of our life working on average, of which Taylor then said, he's already done. Uh, he's, already, he's already hit it. And so we realize that work then is one of the most influential roles for us outside the home. And so no doubt this is why Paul, uh, why Paul picks this. I want you to think about Hang with me here, witnessing to someone else Romans Road versus relationship. I'm fully convinced people can get saved through the Romans Road. However, more often than not, people are led to Christ by by seeing people, by seeing Christ in people. And as they see me at work, as they see me in the community, as they see me as a neighbor, do they see Christ in me? Uh, and we spend so much time around people typically that we work with uh, that we realize that this gives us a tremendous opportunity to be an influence for Christ, that, that see that we are countercultural. We do live differently. And so I think that's the reason why Paul uh, mentions this here. And he's, Paul talks about several things in here, and we're not going to necessarily read it for the sake of time this morning because I had a lot to review. Um, I mentioned to you two weeks ago that freedom, freedom from authority simply does not exist. And it's critical that our kids understand this. Sometimes they think obedience is just a childish thing, Um, but it's not. It's an adult thing that even all of us to some degree are employed. Um, And while I'm I'm self-employed, well, you've got taxes, you have OSHA guidelines, you have whatever it is. Every one of us have authority of some kind regardless of what kind of level of authority we have. All of us do. And as we remind our children that freedom from authority simply does not exist. Uh, Something else that we looked at last week is that Paul commanded the slaves – Okay. Remember, we, we, two lessons uh, ago, we talked about just what their life was like. I mean, it was a really difficult life that Roman slaves lived in. And Paul comes to them and tells them things like obey. He told, he told them to have fear and trembling towards their masters, which was kind of a struggle for us when we looked at that two weeks ago, and we talked a little bit about that. However, Paul is telling them to be authentic, to be sincere in their work. Some of the translations we looked at, it says, try to please them all the time. Not just when they're looking. Don't work just to earn their favor, because you're supposed to work not as unto man, but as unto as unto the Lord. The reason why I should work hard is not because I'm trying to impress a boss, not because I'm trying to get promotion, but because I realize that my master is Christ, and I want to be a good reflection of Him. And I don't want to. I want to be sincere in what I do. That we're authentic. That we're not superficial, and especially not hypocritical. And so, imagine the slave worker. Who works harder than the paid employee is what we talked about. So, I mean, some of these guys might literally be working beside a paid laborer, and here we have a slave worker, and Paul challenges them. I don't necessarily think it's too far of a stretch to say as a slave who probably gets mistreated, which is the epitome of the gospel, someone who's mistreated, that they rise to a level that's higher. And so someone who's mistreated, someone who's marginalized, someone who has no rights, that he would say, you need to work harder than the guy that's getting paid beside you. What kind of testimony would that have been towards the master? incredible, right? And so so you are an authority. Let's say that you are sitting in the church at Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus was one of the major slave ports in the Roman world and Asia Minor. And you are the authority that's reading this. And you're hearing someone talk to your subordinates about how hard they should work. About how they should be sincere. What, what are you probably thinking? Absolutely. This is good stuff. It's like the husbands that's sitting there when it's talking about obeying the, wife, you know, the wives, obeying the husband. They're like, yeah, get up. Um, but here we have, but here we have Paul who switches the narrative and says, Masters, you're not off the hook. Because just like I talk to the husband and the wife, just like I talk to the child and the parent, I'm talking to the subordinate, and now I'm talking to the authority. This is double-sided. These are two things. And so here we have imagine this, you are the authority, and you're hearing Paul just go after your subordinates, those that work for you. And he starts off and says, masters, do the same. Can you imagine the silence that would have been in church that Sunday morning when they read Paul's letter? You're supposed to do the same that they're doing. He goes on and says, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. There are some great books on leadership. Some of these are classics. Some of these are ones that are a little bit newer. There's great lessons to learn from all of these. And so you might say, well, I'm not you know, a, a leader. You know, I'm just a low man on the totem pole. Well, I want you to consider the fact that there is formal leadership and informal leadership. You may have a formal role of leadership, but to some degree, all of us have an, at least an informal role of leadership in where we work. You may not have a title, but you may have a coworker that looks to you because uh, they're also on the totem pole and you happen to be the subject matter expert at your level. You could be a parent. You could be a spouse who's trying to lead your other spouse on a difficult day Okay, because we all realize that that happens as well. And the thing that I love about Maxwell and his books is he describes leadership as what? It starts with an I. Influence. I don't lead anybody. So you're saying that you don't influence anyone. I would dare argue that every single one of us in here, regardless of what our quote-unquote formal title might be, every one of us influence other people. That is the nature of the gospel. We are called to influence people towards the gospel. We are called to direct people towards the gospel. And there's great lessons to learn from these. You know, Leadership Challenge, Kuzes and Posner, talking about Model the Way. We had that as a staff, uh, a staff thing a couple years ago. Extreme Ownership, um, as a leader, it's always your fault. Okay, take ownership. Now, my brother says sometimes he goes to people and says, you need to read this book. <laughs> you really need to read this book. Uh, lessons like that I take away from is never throw someone under the bus. As a leader, take the black eye for someone else it looks better for the organization and people respond to it better. Likewise, the highly effective habits of people. Awesome, awesome, awesome stuff. And so, but do we believe that all truth is God's truth? Okay. So if we believe that he is the way the truth and the life then likewise a lot of times what we read from books like these actually have their roots in, in God's truth. And so let's even though we could talk about all kinds of leadership this morning, people write books, Maxwell's made like a whole, you know, business out of it. Let's talk about what God's word tells us about being spirit-filled leaders this morning. All right? So first thing, look at this this concept of do the same. I don't think we we I don't think we can recognize how how they would have received this. Because remember, the Romans, they believed themselves to be too dignified to do certain of these tasks. They believed that they were on a different social level. They actually were, I mean, they really kind of were subhumans kind of in their their mind, okay? So when we read the concept of masters do the same, what could we say a spirit-filled leader is? A spirit-filled leader is one who leads by
1: example.
0: Mm. Example. So in so doing... What does this look like? And let's not talk like technical terms. Let's talk practical street level action. What does it look like to be a leader who leads by example? Okay. Okay. Humble service. Okay. No job is too low. Uh, The first, when my wife and I first moved to Durham, um, our pastor, their senior pastor, I'll never forget it, on a Wednesday night he was dressed in suit and tie and a grease vat exploded in the hallway right before Wednesday night church. And there he was in suit and tie cleaning it up. I mean, no one would have this kind of... This guy's about to preach. He's got to go in to study. He's got to pray, reflect, all that. You know, he's dressed... No. It just volumes to me in saying that's someone who leads by, by example. Okay? No task is too small. What else? Okay. How would you say that in one word? I don't know. Aware, responsive. I don't know. Aware, responsive. Cause we actually did talk about responsive leadership, um, earlier. Um, how about this show up early? I remember one time, um, I remember one time I, uh, I had kind of a negative interaction with this. I had just started teaching and, uh, and I remember it had something to do with, uh, we were, it's one of those like once every blue moon where like it actually kind of snows in North Carolina or it kind of, it was a little bit frosty that morning and we were having a delay. And I remembered I called my boss because I was on the way to work, not the pastor. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, why don't you take care of when you get to work? I'm going to come in later. I'm like, what? <laughs> what, what? What's up with that? So being there early, what else? I would say one nugget I picked up this last week from the senior leaders, like model what you preach.
1: So if you say
0: like, hey, go and be with your family, then you should also be mm-hmm. at sixteen hundred or seventeen hundred to go be with your
1: family,
0: because
1: those under you won't leave until you leave. Good. Everyone at the commander's truck or vehicle in the parking lot. Waiting for them to leave. Wow. Well, I'm so I ask Apologize. Apologize. Oh that hurts.
0: Oh that hurts.
1: Yeah.
0: That probably hurts more than most because to be able to say I was wrong. Which, by the way, our kids respond well to that when we say, look, I blew it. I could have responded better. You know, sorry. I assumed. Okay. I say humility. humility. And that would be very hard for a, um, an authority at this time because – and I know military culture is kind of the same. Like it looks like weakness, you know. And so, so with these in mind, with these in mind, I found it interesting. I was reading – I'll show you the book here in a few minutes – um, but one of my favorite books on leadership is written by Oswald Sanders. It's called Spiritual Leadership. And, and, he, and he mentions this. He says that King James Bible uses the term leader only six times. Much more frequently, the role is called this. We do not read about Moses, my leader, but we read about Moses, my servant. I know I've told you guys this before, but in case you forgot, like most students do, um, you go to the end of Joseph's life or Joshua's life, I mean, Joshua was an incredible leader. I mean, arguably one of Israel's greatest generations. Military victories, all the stuff that they did, and um, the entire book of the Bible is dedicated towards this guy. You go to the end of Deuteronomy and beginning of Joshua when Moses died; like he has like just this amazing eulogy of God talked with Moses like no other man. He did this, he did this, he did this. I mean, it's a very really powerful eulogy. However, when Joshua died, it just says, "Joshua, my servant, died." And at first you read that, and you're like, well, I mean, aren't you going to give him kind of the same, you know, a little bit? And uh, in my Thomas Nelson commentary Bible, it said, although it seems abrupt and almost um, dismissing, that that was his greatness. His greatness was that he was a servant. And as was mentioning, you know, do the small things, do the things that other people aren't willing to do. Those are the things that stand out. And the thing that made Joshua great was not the military mind or whatever; it's just the fact that he just said, "I being in the way, Lord send me. I'll do whatever it is that you want for me." Um, Christ said this exactly in Matthew twenty-three, eleven: Who, "Whoever is greatest will be your be your servant, will be your slave." Okay, literally is the exact same word: bond servant, slave, and servant are all the same uh, Greek word. And so, regardless of what translation is, you know er, that you're going to be a do loss. If you want to be great, you have to you have to be a servant. Uh, and there's so much of what Christ taught that was just countercultural, like a shock factor. Like if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Um, talk about getting people's attention. Um, if, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Uh, and so here we have when Christ was teaching, he was like the, those that are in authority, they lord it over them. That's what the Gentiles do. But a spirit-filled person is one who uses his authority not to his advantage, but he uses it to serve other people and to help other people. Uh, what does this look like at work? I'll give you one example. Patience. We'll come back. We'll come back to some of this. But what kind of characteristics? Not really action, as much as characteristics. What kind of characteristics define a servant leader?
1: Having the mind of Christ.
0: Accountability. We could come back to that. Actually, good. Yep.
1: Yeah.
0: Listening. So in my, um, I I told people, I can't wait for my, my class to get over this is on conflict. I've been like a magnet taking this class. And, and in that class, one of the chapters was on mindfulness, being present in the moment, physically present in the moment. Nothing distracts me. I'm listening, not just listening for the opportunity to say something. I am listening to actually understand. Okay. Um, and so mindfulness being, being willing to whatever that was, it was good. Uh, I forgot. Um, so here we have all of, all of these things, being a, a communicator, learning, confidence, um, and we'll come back to some of these here in just a minute. Um, and so I did read this book over Christmas break. <laughs> My mother-in-law gave me this book, and I read it. Um, it's like she was trying to tell me something, as <laughs> much as she just said, you want this book. And so I read this, this short book over Christmas break, and I shared this with you guys before. Uh, we realized that being a servant leader is that I'm an example in humility. Uh, if, if you read... Um, the uh, Jocko Wilnick Will- and um, Leif Babin, they wrote a book on the, on the dichotomy of leadership. Um, and then likewise, Tim Elmore wrote a book on the, par- the eight paradoxes of leadership. And they both say the same thing, that a leader has to be one who is both humble and confident. It's a dichotomy because there's, they're, they're opposites of each other. Humble and proud of it. Yes. Well, not, not really, not really. <laughs> but at the same time, that, 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 that people are attracted to a humble confidence because the opposite of that is someone who is arrogant, someone who won't listen, someone who won't apologize, someone who's not willing to learn. They always have to be right. And I shared this with you guys a couple weeks ago that just like pride is the, the root of every vice, the opposite of that would be to say that humility is the root of every virtue. And so as a leader, is humility present in my life? And so um, 1 Peter 5.5, 5, Peter uses the phrase, clothed with humility. And that particular phrase refers to a slave putting on a white apron. So the epitome of someone who is in authority as a servant leader, that they go and find the white cloth, they find whatever it is, and they do the things that a slave would do. And we find this example in Christ that he, he did that when he washed the disciples' feet. And so long before the leadership model of servant leadership in 1970 became popular, Christ was modeling it. Long before someone wrote a book about it, Christ taught it. And so the idea of being a servant leader is that we are examples in humility. Um, One of the things I loved at the end of that book is is that pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Now he goes on and he says, stop your threatening. One of the things that was characteristic was the physical abuse that the slaves would go through. He didn't say stop abusing them. He said, I don't even want you to threaten them. So we're talking about a, a, a... A spirit-filled leader is one who leads by example. We find a spirit-filled leader is one who treats others with grace. So what are some other words that you might use for the word threaten? Intimidation is a really good word. I didn't have that down. Intimidation. Because threaten is one of those really neat words when you look it up. The definition of threaten is to threaten. Um, and so,
1: <laughs> yep, awful.
0: yes. So intimidation. What else? Jeopardize. Jeopardize. Mm.
1: To instill fear.
0: Okay. I think some other ones I had found was to oppress. A good old old English word. To vex. You know to vex. Now, so don't get too ahead of me right now. Okay, So this is rhetorical. This type of action contrasts what for a spirit-filled person. Think about someone who is threatening. What kind of characteristics would be present in the life of someone who is characterized by threatening? Think about Galatians 5, okay, where Paul contrasts the fruits of the flesh versus the fruits of the spirit. Um, some things that I wrote down. So it says the works of the, of the flesh are evident. They're very easy to see. Uh, for instance, enmity. Or hostility, their life is characterized by hostility towards other people. Their life is characterized by strife, because some people drama just follows them everywhere they go. Now, we also have fits of anger. Again, we realize that being angry in and of itself is not sinful, because we can be angry but not sin. We realize that we, as a believer, can lose our testimony because we do have a fit of anger. Remember, this is this is one whose life is characterized by these things. So, having Having said that, using the fruits of the Spirit, how should a leader treat his or her subordinates? For example, instead of saying, with love. Okay, well that's great. Okay, What does it do? What does unselfish love do as a leader? At a specific action? How? So, some more of a one more example. But if you you encounter a situation where, say, subordinate has done something wrong, Instead of just in a fit of anger or blatantly snapping and issuing punishment and/or judgment, actually taking the time, like with our kids, to understand what's going on, and either giving grace with promise or with the hope of that's helping good. motivate, or issuing an appropriate consequence that is not just harsh and out of a spirit of anger, but out of a spirit of that's good. What else?
1: self-control.
0: How. Believing the, best. Believing the best. I tell my staff all the time. First Corinthians thirteen. Love believes the best. Love assumes the best. My father and I were talking about that yesterday. We should lead with questions instead of accusations. Why? Can you help me understand why you did this? Because sometimes people they have the right intention. They might have just followed the wrong action. Okay. How so? Well,
1: you use tact and. Take what
0: you know of
1: the situation and apply it accordingly. Good. You don't assume they motive. Mm-hmm. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Use words to encourage.
0: Because I, I told my staff there is nothing more unselfish than giving your time. I can give away a dollar in my pocket and it really doesn't cost me much. But when you give someone your time, your attention, it speaks volumes. Okay? Here's some things that I wrote. Unselfish love doesn't abuse the position for personal gain. Making others stay late while you leave early. Putting more work on others to, to make life work easier for myself. Purchasing a gift card and leaving it on their desk because you know they're having a hard time. Even a $5 gift card, man, encourages people. Working with staff, man, I, people appreciate the intentionality of time. The fact that you were at least recognized. That someone even just stopped what they were doing to say thank you for what you were doing. Um, sending someone early because you see that they need a break. Even if it means I pick up extra workload or I've got to figure out coverage. Um, having patience with a subordinate. Understanding a home situation. Okay. Things are rarely as they seem. I can tell you that right now. And working with 300 children, 30 plus staff, hundreds of parents. Things are rarely as they seem. There's almost always more to the story. So... How can I understand the situation? Sometimes things are what we think they are. Mm-hmm. A vast majority of the time, there's more. Um, understanding a home situation. Immaturity that needs developing. Is this a discipline issue or is this an immaturity issue? Is this a capacity issue or is this a coaching issue? Okay, I tell my staff quite often, it's very easy for us as adults to, adju- to judge children by our adult yardstick. Mm-hmm. Well, I know how I would handle that. Well, yeah, because you're an adult. <laughs> This is an eight-year-old. How would you handle X, Y, and Z? So as, as, as an authority, it's very easy for me to say, well, of course they should have done that. Well, yeah, because you've, you've handled that three or four times already. They've never handled that before. Am I judging people by my yardstick when they don't have the experience, the knowledge, the understanding? And we realize that experience comes by both good and, and bad. bad. Um, long-suffering recognizing the difference between capacity and one's need to be mentored. Um, Gentleness and kindness. Giving grace because everyone has a bad day. I tell kids all the time, it's okay to have a bad day. We all have bad days, but it's a matter of how you respond to people when they're trying to help you on your bad day. That's important. Um, Kindness and how we speak to people. Uh, I love a, a John Maxwell and Craig Rochelle podcast I heard several months ago, and I tell my staff often, if you're not clear you're not being kind. If you're not being clear, you're not being kind. Now, there's a difference between being a jerk, okay? And also being so nebulous that people don't know specifically what it is and then the leader can walk away saying, well, I addressed it and the person walks away and saying, well, that was a nice chat. (laughs) You know, if we're not being clear, we're not being kind and the the difficult with that is tact. How can I be clear in a way that's grace-filled and loving but but at the same time, it needs to be said. It needs to be correct because after all, we tell children all the time, love corrects. So a spiritual leader is one who, when necessary and when appropriate, corrects with clear <clears throat> kindness. Um, self-control, not acting in anger because the subordinate got something that I wanted. Or because I made a decision that someone higher up might have overturned, and it was something the teacher wanted. Okay, So there are multiple, multiple ways that we could look at all this. They um, – Anna mentioned accountability. He says that knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. So how does the fear of the Lord play into this? It's interesting because the Old Testament talks a lot about the fear of the Lord, but the New Testament talks a lot about the grace of God. Okay? However, if God is immutable and he doesn't change, they're still. They're both. Okay? Both of them need to be part of our thinking. So we're assuming these are saved masters, saved authorities, and he says to them, you need to make sure that you realize that God is also your master. You are also going to be held accountable. So how does the fear of the Lord play into this? Reverence. What's that?
1: Reverence.
0: Reverence. Reverence towards? They're an
1: image bearer
0: of Christ. Awesome. Because that reverence then, the way that I perceive my subordinate changes because, I mean, really then we are brother and sister. Yeah. Yep.
1: Well, it goes with the intent and- Heart too, The intent of my heart and the intent of the person that I'm speaking with, their heart. Uh, can I just say this verse that's most convicting to me in this whole passage right here? It's where it says, Obey with enthusiasm as though serving the Lord and not people. So whether I am the, quote, master or the slave at that point, God knows my attitude. <laughs> okay? I, I
0: almost like obey and honor yeah. from earlier in the chapter.
1: You know what, so whichever place that I'm in, and y'all, you know, this convicts me because I am a master of having that grumpy, grudgy, I'm sure I'm the only one, but, you know, I'm a master of having that. Where outwardly, I'm trying to follow the rules, obey, be gracious, be kind, talk with a parent, da-da-da-da, but inside my heart, it's pretty dirty. You know, and that attitude is, if just read the email, mm. or if email, you would just do what I asked yes. you to do, or, you know, as the master yes. if,
0: if You check your inbox. And the, or, the struggle with that is, that is when that Holy Spirit is in the moment saying, yeah, how about that? I mean, check the email that I just sent to you. Did you not remember when we talked about that last week? Yeah. You know, we have that statement about power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. absolutely. And one of the struggles is as someone gains more power, more influence, That our natural bent is to use it to our advantage. Okay, Knowing that God sees Mm -hmm. that we are going to be held accountable regardless of what level no matter how high up God might give us a formal leadership or not, I realize I am always under God's authority. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the very beginning of how to be a spirit-filled leader. Uh, Paul calls masters authorities to this critical thought because someone may be a master but God's still their master yes. still, so everyone is accountable and we have in the Old Testament we have this idea, of, well not really Old Testament but um, when we think about just because someone is saved, does that mean that they're saved from the wrath of God okay. okay I might be eternally saved but can I still here and now face the consequences of the fear of the Lord because I oppressed someone who was marginalized I was not living with integrity. I abused my position, and whatever it may be. Of course, we would like to think that a saved person wouldn't do that. But at the same time, God says, I'm, God says, I will not be mocked. And so we realize that there is an eternal wrath of God, but we also realize that God also disciplines those that he, that he loves. So the fear of the Lord for a spirit-filled believer is still a very prevalent thing. I might be saved, but you know what? God sees. And I realize that I am to be held accountable for this. And I tell you, it is so often in the back of my mind when I'm handling this situation, when I'm handling this child, when I stand before God someday, how what's God going to say? I know that I'm going to be judged for this. And God might say, knucklehead, I gave this child to you in the academy for a reason. And what did you do with it? You know. And so the fear of the Lord needs to be something that we're always doing. Um, and so... With that very reason, knowing that I'm accountable to God, I'm going. I, I'm going as a spirit-filled leader. I, I want to try to live with integrity, knowing that God sees. I'm going to be above reproach. Um, seeing God, will, God will judge me to some degree based on the way that I judge other people and the way that I steward my position. Um, I must be spirit-led in my decision making. And I tell people, I think one of the key characteristics of being a leader is being spirit-filled, because there are so many things that, like, Lord, how do I handle this when I factor this and this and this? I mean. Holy Spirit, I mean, some things are clear cut, but other things are not so much. And, and sometimes, man, as I agonize over something for a day or two days or three days is, Lord, just lead me, guide me, because I don't know what your will is regarding this. Um, and so some applications. What is the difference between a, a leader and a spirit-filled leader? Who's getting the credit? Good. Accountability. Good. Who am I accountable to? Maxwell talks about that. Level one leadership is just a title. Level two is relationships, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Some people lead you simply because you have a title and not because you have a relationship with them, is the idea. Here's some thoughts. A secular leader defines leadership as influence. By the way, love the quote, I think it's a great quote. Okay. A spirit filled leader defines leadership as moving people to God's agenda. Good old Blackaby quote. A leader is simply one who gets people to move towards an agenda. A spiritual leader knows he must be able, he must be able to move God through prayer. That's from that Sanders book. A secular leader runs to books and blogs. <laughs> Google. How do I? <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, Google's my best friend. Um, but a spiritual leader is one who runs to God's spirit and God's word. and I'm not discounting any of the other pieces. Yes, books are helpful. Yes blogs are helpful. Yes, it is influence. Yes, yes and yes. But we are called to be even so much more than that. Um, two of the best books that I've ever read uh, on spiritual leadership, one is Oswald Sanders. another one is the Black of His book on spiritual leadership. Um, and uh, there's a, a quote that Claudius Clear gave, um, said that a reader could divide books as he would people. He says a few of them were lovers. And those books, he would go with him into exile. He would take them with him. Others were just friends. And most books were acquaintances, works on which he was just on nodding terms. So you might have some books on your shelf that are you're just on nodding terms with. Yeah, I read the book, got the badge, boom, done. But then there's other books that just, like God's word, man, it is just, it helped me so much, I want to read it again and again and again. And some books like these are ones I would encourage you, especially if you have a formal leadership role, regardless of what your where your paycheck comes from, whether ministry or military or something else that starts with an M. Um, I would encourage you to read these books. Um, Spiritual Leadership is just an amazing and amazing book by Oswald Sanders. I've read it a couple times, and every time I read through it, it just it encourages me tremendously. And so with that being said, we'll save this for next week as our review introduction. So, Sam. <clears throat>